A very warm welcome to this uh, latest lecture in the LSE European Institute's Perspectives on Europe uh, public lecture series. Uh, there is a hash Twitter hashtag um, for this event, which is hash LSE uh, Finland, for fairly obvious reasons. Um, it's a great pleasure to, uh, to welcome a very distinguished member of the uh, LSE's extended uh, family for, uh, for Minister, um, Minister Stubb, Alexander Stubb, did his doctorate here, some of you may know, um, completed it in 1999, uh, and his topic, his, his topic was Flexible Integration and the Amsterdam Treaty. So, um, uh, a few, few people really who really had, their, their, had to get their brain in gear for ready for a very long time about how the EU can find arrangements with its awkward customers, which leads us, uh, leads us to the theme um, of the topic of, uh, of Alex Dubb's uh, lecture today. Uh, just a word about him. Um, he has been Minister for European Affairs and Foreign Trade since um, 2011. He previously served as Minister for Foreign Affairs from uh, April 2008. And before that, um, Alex Stubb was in the European Parliament, where he worked with issues concerning, um, I gather, the internal market, um, the EU budget and external relations. Um, and uh, he's also uh, been at that, uh, that the interface uh, of public policy. Um, and, uh, and um, academia, which we like to cultivate here at, at LSE. And he's done that with great distinction, having been author of uh, several books on uh, European Union, European integration, uh, which have become fairly standard recommended monographs on university, university uh, reading lists. And he's also been a visiting professor at the College of Europe. So, um, Alex, we're delighted you've come back to your alma mater today, as you have done many, many times. You're always very welcome. And we're very much looking forward to what you have to say to us on the subject of the UK and the EU today. Thanks. Thank you very much, Maurice, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Very nice to see you here. Um, I'm quite avid on Twitter. Uh, some people say probably a little bit too excited about it as well, but I, I'm really pleased the Twitter buzz before this event. I don't know who the person behind LSE events is. Is it one of you? Is someone guilty in this room? Uh, but you've done a great job in, in, in promoting uh, this talk here today. It is indeed uh, very nice to be here. I always feel very much at home at the LSE because I, I did do my PhD here, a sexy subject of differentiated integration, uh, in the Amsterdam and Nice negotiations, 1997 and 1999. Uh, I'm also really glad to be here because usually when, when I'm here, William Wallace is here. But now I can't see William, William here. He was my um, supervisor of the thesis and, uh, uh, and a great friend. Uh, with the Wallaces, the good thing is that you know, when you have, get one Wallace, you usually get two. Uh, Helen was my teacher at uh, the College of Europe in, uh, in Bruges. Now, um, today I'll be talking about Britain and the UK, uh, illusions on, of sovereignty. 
Um, and I'm doing this very much uh, as a friend of the UK and very much as an Anglophile. I, I love the UK, not only because I'm married to a Brit, uh, which actually, who actually has a Scottish heritage, so I can wear the Innes Tartan, but she is English. Uh, my children have dual nationality, Finnish um, and uh, British. Uh, and I also do it very much as an, as I said, uh, Anglophile. So if, if this was a good talk to, to, to a friend uh, or a good discussion to a friend, I'd, I'd probably start by saying, sit down, we need to talk about Europe. Because I'm actually quite worried uh, of the debate that we're seeing uh, on European affairs uh, here in uh, the UK uh, today. Uh, for me... Finland and the UK have always been very close. Uh, we share, of course, values, albeit I think you were one of the first democracies to declare war on another democracy, and that was Finland <laughs> during World War II. But we forgive you that, uh, and they were no major <clears throat> armed incidents uh, at the time. But, but we do have an affinity for you. There are a lot of Finnish students probably here in the audience today. Can I see a few hands, perhaps? Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of the students here uh, probably have read throughout their lives uh, stuff in English and follow the English media uh, or the Anglophile uh, media. The values that I hold dear here in the UK have to do with reason. They have to do with individual rights. They have to do with freedom. Uh, they have to do with pragmatism, openness, opportunity, Things such as free trade are very close to my heart. At the same time, when I look at the British debate today, it seems like pragmatism has given surrender to ideology. It seems that openness have given or has given uh, 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 surrender to barriers. Uh, and uh, in many ways, confidence has given surrender to mistrust. And I say this, again, gently and with a close affinity. I think this is one of the most civilized countries in the world with one of the most uncivilized debates on European affairs uh, that we have seen uh, across this continent. Now, I will speak freely today. Uh, I will give three points. One is going to be on the British contribution. The other one, the second one, is going to be on the British-EU debate and my third point on the illusions of modern uh, sovereignty. Uh, I will speak freely, but we do have a written speech as well, which I have already forwarded um, on uh, Twitter, uh, and you can check it out from there. Now, I'll start with my first point, then the British contribution uh, to European uh, integration. I actually think that the British contribution uh, to the EU uh, has been a great uh, success story. Wrong angle. Uh, British contribution to the EU has been a great uh, success story. Uh, and I think the EU would be much, much poorer was it not for the contribution of uh, the United uh, Kingdom. Uh, and I've sussed out, or we have sussed out, ten key contributions uh, that the UK uh, has given us. Number one, the internal market. Now, a lot of people go hard on Margaret Thatcher for many different reasons, but remember that she was one of the champions of the internal market. 
For me, the EU is based on the free movement of goods, services, money, and people. And she was actually one of the driving forces in pushing it uh, through. Second uh, contribution uh, is one of free trade. Was it not uh, for the UK's ideological input into the European debate, I don't think that uh, our trade policy would be as strong uh, as it is uh, today. And do remember that trade is one of the exclusive competences of the European Union. A third example of a strong British contribution uh, is competitiveness. And here I don't only mean competition policy, but the idea to install free market thinking and competitive markets uh, in the European Union. The fourth contribution uh, to European integration has to do with red tape. I probably think that we would have more red tape inside the European Union, was it not uh, for the UK's uh, contribution. I'll get back to the debate on uh, competences uh, a little bit later. The uh, fifth contribution of the UK is financial discipline. And here I don't mean Thatcher standing, I want my money back, nor do I mean the British rebate, which can be debated ad infinitum, but probably not removed uh, for political reasons. But I do think that the UK has in many ways been uh, the epitome of good budgetary control also uh, inside uh, the European Union. The sixth contribution is on climate change. I'm not saying that the UK is a champion of climate change, but it certainly has given a strong contribution to the debate. The seventh contribution is a bit controversial, but I say it anyway, the common foreign and security policy. I firmly believe that the European Union would not be having a true common foreign and security policy if not if the UK, France and Germany do not agree on something, and we always need the UK uh, contribution on it. The eighth is probably the most important contribution that Britain has given to the EU, and that is enlargement. We are now 28 member states. Um, we all know that it started in six, went to nine, ten, twelve, and then with the Nordics and Austria coming in in 95, we went to 15. Then in 2004, uh, we went to uh, 25, 2007 to 27, and now with Croatia, we're 28. The UK has always been a champion of enlargement, and I do think that that is probably one of the most uh, understated yet significant policies that the European Union uh, has driven uh, forward. The ninth contribution uh, has to do with financial services. Uh, we used to have an elevator speech in Finland uh, where we said that you know, we are only 5 million people, but we provide uh, paper for 500 million people. Well, for you, you could probably say that uh, in London, within approximately one or two square kilometers, you provide for the financial services most of the continent. Uh, so the impact has been very strong on that. And the tenth contribution uh, and impact of a British membership to the EU is very important, and that is Marmite. <laughs> Sorry, I had to wake you up. Uh, you either love it or hate it. Uh, I actually love it, um, and I have to because my wife likes it uh, as well. What I'm trying to say is that was it not for the internal market, Marmite would not be moving freely <laughs> across the continent, uh, and, of course, um, the European culinary traditions would be much poorer for it. 
So my first thesis today uh, is that the UK has had a great impact on European integration and I personally believe that uh, the UK has benefited greatly from European membership uh, over the years. Now, my second point then is about the British um, EU debate. I mentioned earlier that uh, it's the most civilized country with one of the most uncivilized debates on uh, European affairs. It is, I must admit, mind-boggling sometimes to see the stuff said and written uh, about the European Union uh, in this country. Um, It is really stretching the imagination of, uh, I would argue, journalistic Uh, or other uh, truths, but it's a thing that we have to uh, live with. Uh, And it's probably a thing that a lot of us uh, on the continent uh, have to live with in the long run uh, as well. Misinformation uh, is plenty. There's very little debate in the UK about the positive impacts uh, of uh, membership. And you don't need to just do pub politics or roam around at football stadiums to understand that uh, the positive impact of uh, EU membership is not uh, debated. It's always been a very difficult subject. I mean, uh, the classic uh, headlines from the sun uh, everyone knows of, uh, fog over the channel, the continent cut off. Uh, And there's always been this sort of sentiment of of, of difference. And I understand that an island is always a little bit different uh, from um, a continent. But nevertheless, uh, I think today when geographic borders are not necessarily the thing anymore, it's difficult to understand this debate. Now, of course, Prime Minister Cameron, um, a little bit over a year ago, I think it was in January, uh, gave a speech uh, which basically said that there should be a renegotiation of the relationship of the UK with the European Union, and then that renegotiation should be somehow put in uh, a referendum. Of course, that speech and the decision has three locks. The first lock is that uh, the Conservative Party needs to be in government uh, after the elections. The second lock uh, is that some kind of renegotiation is made. Uh, and the third lock is that the referendum is won. Uh, so it's going to be uh, an uphill battle, uh, but it's something that we need to face. Now, there are two ways to approach uh, this uh, debate. The first one is, and that's the sportsman in me, I guess, is to tackle it head on and say that, okay, it's good. Now, once and for all, let's settle uh, EU membership uh, or the UK's relationship with the EU. Now, that's a sportsman in me, not the rugby player, but perhaps the ice hockey player. Um, Mind you, we beat the U.S. 5-1 and... uh, 5-0 was? 5-0 was 5-1 and the Olympic bronze medal. That was good. Uh, So that was was good. Uh, The second approach is is from an analytical perspective, and here is where I get a little bit worried, Uh, both, I guess, as a politician, as a minister, and and, uh, as an academic... Uh, as well. Now, this whole thing about a balance of competence review, my first observation is that for me at the end of the day, it shouldn't be about the level of competence. It should be about how that competence is used. But nevertheless, the UK has put forward this study. William Wallace is actually quite 
involved in it uh, as well. Uh, we have started to look at different uh, legislation inside the European Union, and I, I do welcome that. Now, this is not off the cuff, but this could be argued. Um, there are approximately 17,000 uh, European laws or decisions in force today. And uh, the key decisions, in other words, directives and regulations, form about 9,000 of those. Now, I'm not claiming that we've looked at every services directive or every directive that has to do with the odometers of two- to three-wheeled motor vehicles or every directive uh, that has or, or regulation that has to do uh, with uh, chemicals. But we've looked at a lot of them. And we've come to the conclusion that actually the legislation is not that bad. I mean, yeah, there are a couple of silly things, but which worldly legislation doesn't have that? The same thing actually with competences. We all know that the EU actually has exclusive competence in only five areas. Competition, uh, trade, uh, customs, uh, monetary policy, and then fisheries slash uh, agriculture. So exclusive competence is, is, is quite limited. And if, I, and if we interpret the studies correctly um, that the UK has made, they're saying that the balance of competence is actually pretty right. It's not that bad. Might be jigged here and there, but not that much. Now, why am I worried then about this whole thing? Well, my worry is that we might be facing at some stage a UK exit from the European Union. And my argument today, of course, is that that would be to the detriment of the EU and that would be to the detriment of the UK. The thing I don't understand about this whole debate about legislation is the claim that European legislation is worse than national legislation. Now, if you think about it, what is better, one piece of legislation or 28 different pieces of legislation on something? I would argue that usually one piece of legislation uh, is a little bit uh, easier. I don't think that the idea of renegotiating the treaties is going to work at the end of the day, and I have three reasons uh, for it. The first one is that I don't think we're looking at a new intergovernmental conference, and I don't think anyone wants a new intergovernmental conference. I've been involved uh, in the Amsterdam negotiations, the Nice negotiations, the Constitutional Convention, and the Lisbon negotiations as a civil servant. That's when I had a real job, as I say. Uh, and <laughs> he agrees. And, 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 and it's a cumbersome, long process. Now we have 28 member states. Can you imagine renegotiating, renegotiating a treaty with 28 member states now, and having to go all through uh, the ratification processes, including uh, referenda? I don't believe in this whole debate about the EU moving towards a, a, a super state either. So, you know, we should look at the treaties that we have right now and live with them. The second reason is that even though I've written my PhD here on differentiated integration, my conclusion in that one is that there's a limit to what you can pick and choose from the treaties. We can't go towards an a la carte Europe where member states just start picking and choosing where they want to uh, integrate. Uh, and we certainly can't give that 
prerogative to one state only. Now, there have been a few cases, of course, the UK and the Euro, uh, Denmark and defense, Denmark and the, uh, uh, and the Euro and so on, but usually it's not the norm, and we can't go towards a system where you just pick and choose uh, what uh, you have. There would be no European Union left. Now, the third reason I don't think we're going to renegotiate comes from the other side. Some people say that we need to renegotiate the treaties in order to give more force to the Eurozone. I think we've been able to actually solve the institutional dilemmas of the Eurozone crisis fairly well uh, so far. Uh, We've had a triple crisis of debt, uh, of the banking union, uh, and of growth, and the debt and the banking union side has been solved through legislation. We don't need treaty change. Now, then in the UK, finally, there is also debate about some kind of a looser relationship a la the European economic area. Now, I understand that some government members reject that idea. We're not going to become a Norway, we're not going to become a Liechtenstein, and we're not going to become an Iceland. That's fine, and I understand why. (laughs) Because when you are in the EEA, you don't sit and negotiate on the legislation that you have to adapt you're not in the room where those negotiations take place. And not only that, at the end of the day, you have to pay. (laughs) You are a net contributor. Norway is a bigger net contributor to the European Union than Finland is, albeit Norway is not a member of the European Union. So uh, it's not going to work. I think this is an uneasy debate uh, in many ways, and I do think that the competences of the Europeans stand fairly comfortably at the moment. My final and third point before we go into uh, Q&A has then to do with uh, illusions of uh, sovereignty. Now, I think here at the LSE, and especially those studying international relations or European affairs, it's quite easy to be realistic about how the world works. But when we look at the debate that we quite often see, not least in the British media, I think there's a profound understanding of where the boundaries uh, of sovereignty lie. I can understand historians who look at the Treaty of Westphalia and the Congress of Vienna, where we establish sovereign states. But don't come and tell me in 2014 that nation states stand fully sovereign. They do not. There is de facto, de facto, or sorry, de jure sovereignty, yes, but de facto there's clearly interdependence. Finland, an example, 40% of the value of our GDP comes from exports. I don't know what the figure is for the UK. Wouldn't surprise me uh, it was higher. Exactly. So don't come and talk to me uh, about uh, sovereignty. The world is not some kind of a Robinson Crusoe island. The economy is global. The problems are transnational, and politics is international. Areas where the UK has been a champion, like climate change or free trade, financial services or energy or transport, they are not something which remain within the sovereign boundaries of a nation-state. They are global. So interdependence determines international relations. And I think it's very important that we be honest about that as well. 
Uh, I'll just mention this in the passing, but I'm sure I'll get questions about it. Do you think that we could solve the Ukrainian crisis alone? <clears throat> the answer is, of course not. We have to try to do it together. Now, Barroso, who was here a few weeks ago, probably said that he wants the EU to be big on big things and small on small things. And I agree. And if I was to give some kind of an economic agenda to the EU and why we need the UK in it, I'd give four examples. One, we need to improve the single market. Two, we need to work on clean technology. Three, we need to work on competitiveness. And four, uh, we need to work on an EU-US free trade agreement, which is commonly known as uh, TTIP. My conclusion then today, very simple. I love having the United Kingdom in the European Union. I think we need the United Kingdom in the European Union. And I think the United Kingdom needs to be in the European Union. But I do think that it's very important that the UK gets its act together and has an honest debate about uh, its membership inside the European Union. I have very little time for all of the statements that I am here to protect British interests. Yeah, I'm here to protect Finnish interests as well. But usually Finnish, British and European interests go hand in hand. This is, ladies and gentlemen, what I wanted to say, my three points. The first one is that the British contribution to the EU debate uh, is great. Second, that the EU-British debate is problematic. And the third one is that we should not have illusions about sovereignty. Thank you very much. I think we have about half an hour. We've got half an hour, absolutely. Thank you for a, a wonderful, uh, wonderfully spirited and punchy presentation, uh, Alex. I'm sure we'll have plenty to say about it. Yes, so uh, please indicate if you'd like to ask a question. Keep it short and sweet. Um, don't try to smuggle the second question in under the, under the cloak of the first. Um, and, um, and just wait for the roving mic. Uh, so, sorry, the gentleman there, John Palmer, and then uh, at, at the back. Um, it doesn't matter which order we take it in. We'll do those people I've just mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. You'd like to go ahead. Do I take a few at a time or, or one at a time? What's up, 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 up I'm to you. Up, up to you. You're the, you're the chairman. Well, if you feel you can do them, do them justice, let's bunch. Let's, let's, let, let's bunch. bunch. Three we will get through more that way. Yes. Okay. Yes. Please start there. Um, we'll take three at a time. Twice you said uh, the, the, the UK is uh, uncivilized. Uh, civilized and it is having an uncivilized debate. That is the tip of an iceberg of the whole globe which is gripped in a grid which is getting tighter and tighter. And as I, Einstein said, we need to have higher and higher levels of thinking to solve the problems we created with the understanding we had previously. There is a, a Give to us all by um, Martin, say, Martin, Oxford Martin School uh, Commission on Future Generations, uh, which is um, I have. I have Thank you. Can you say what, what the question? Thank you. Do you, thank is you. there a question you'd like Can to put? Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, John Palmer. Just, just here. I think this is going to be on <coughs> Europe and the UK. <laughs> nice to see you, Alex. After you, all this you time. too, John. Um, 
My question is about an issue you didn't directly touch on in the UK-EU debate, but which sort of plays a certain role, not with uh, some people, but with others, uh, and that is the uh, languishing character of the European economies following the austerity measures that had to be taken after the financial crash. And uh, my question, to, it has made it difficult for pro-Europeans frequently to argue the case that they would wish to argue. Uh, my question is this, has the time come uh, uh, for some amendment of the austerity regime, for instance, exempting investment uh, in uh, productive capacity from uh, deficit and debt calculation, in a way perhaps prefigured by the single currency golden rule so long ago, though not quite in this context. I'm just wondering when we can expect to see uh, a shift in emphasis towards growth that provides a degree of optimism that I think will be important for the pro-Europeans to win the debate in Britain. Thank you very much. And gentlemen, just gentlemen there. Thank you, Minister. My name is Alex Britton. I'm from the Wall Street Journal. I was wondering if you could... Elaborate. You said your message to, to Britons as a whole, and I was wondering if you could specify what your message might be to the people who have the power to actually influence this, for example, the Prime Minister. Okay. Great, thanks. Um, so I'll, I'll take the, the two questions. John first. Uh, there's an eternal debate about uh, austerity versus growth, and I kind of see those two not as juxtaposing each other, but going uh, hand in hand. And of course, if you want to simplify things, there's been uh, a group of countries, mostly from Northern Europe, uh, ranging from perhaps uh, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, uh, Germany, the Netherlands, um, partially the UK, pushing the austerity agenda. Uh, and also, why not uh, the Baltic states and, uh, and a few others, the Poles? Uh, and then Southern Europe calling more for the growth agenda. I think this is a false debate uh, in many ways. Um, I think this crisis, as I said, has gone through three phases. Number one was a debt crisis, and that was caused by the fact that there was loose interpretation of public finances. And we tried to solve that by putting down, of course, rescue packages, uh, by putting down um, uh, crisis mechanisms and by putting down two-pack and six-pack legislation and fiscal compact, which are all austerity measures. Now, why did we do that? So as to avoid this situation uh, ever uh, reoccurring. The second phase of the uh, crisis was a banking crisis. Uh, and we've tried to deal with that by establishing a uh, a banking union. And the big debate, of course, in all of this is that should we be paying for old sins or should we guarantee uh, that new sins will not re-emerge? And the northerners have had a slightly different view from the southerners uh, on this one. Now we've gone to the third phase, which you're talking about, and that's a growth crisis. And where are we going to get it from? I personally believe that the public sector be it the European Union or London or Helsinki, is not the one that generates growth. It is the private sector that generates growth. We, from the public sector, 
can provide the framework which creates growth, bring down corporate tax rates, give uh, tax, uh, tax levies for angel investors, these types of things. But at the end of the day, it's the British worker or the British entrepreneur or the British enterprise that creates the growth. And we shouldn't create the illusion in the European Union to say that it's okay, you can loosen your monetary strands or your fiscal strands uh, and in that way alleviate growth. I don't think it's going to happen. Now, having said that, am I, am I a fundamentalist on this? Not at all. Look at a country like Finland. We've been number one on austerity. We're a AAA-rated country and stable, actually the only one in the Eurozone. But now we are trying to cut our expenditure as well. In other words, go for austerity. Can we do it all in one lump? No, we'll probably have to phase it out. But, you know, it's a very difficult balance. I'm just happy that the worst of the crisis is over, but I'm not willing to be the one who first says that, okay, let's start putting all of our money on growth and forget the austerity side of, of, of things. Um, now, then Alex from the Wall Street Journal uh, was asking, what is my mes message to political leaders? I mean, I was probably the only pro-European politician who gave a positive uh, spin, if you will, on Cameron's speech. Uh, and that was perhaps the sportsman in me, saying, okay, now go head on and, 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 and tackle it. What I'm trying to say is that in the UK, everyone, including the government, be it conservative or, or Lib Dem, including the opposition, uh, be it uh, Labour, I, I was going to say including UKIP, but probably I can't include UKIP on this, uh, should try to discuss about European affairs honestly. People should not start to clone UKIP in this country. Because in my mind, UKIP does not necessarily give the right facts about what European membership to the UK has meant. How big of a share of trade of the UK is with Europe? It's over 50%. Cut that off and this country is going to be in shambles. Should not give illusions about a lack of influence of the UK in the European Union. The UK has a lot of influence inside the European uh, Union. And I, I, I just think that you have to be honest in this debate. And I just see so much dishonesty in it. And what I'm trying to say is that please do not clone UKIP uh, on, on the debate because that will potentially marginalize the United Kingdom inside the European Union. And that would be to the detriment of both the EU and the UK. Good. More questions? Yes. Uh, the lady over there. Um, thank you. I think that was probably the most enlightened account of the real state of, of, of affairs in, in Europe today. Um, as a Finn, I've lived in the UK for 10 years, and uh, I wish every British person actually listened to what you said today. Mm. Thank you. That was fantastic. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about this slightly off topic, but given what's happening in uh, Ukraine, um, any comment on uh, prospects for sure. Ukrainian accession into the EU? <laughs> okay, okay. We'll, we'll add another couple of questions here. Yep. Tony Giddens, you had your hand up. <laughs> uh, yeah, Tony Giddens, previous director of the LSE. Um, I've been through the balance of competences 
um, in some detail, and as you said, they don't seem to offer anything which would be a foothold for David Cameron supposing his Prime Minister. How then, in your view, is he going to seal some kind of deal with the rest of Europe? Because he's made it clear that he'll campaign for the UK to stay within the EU only if he gets certain things back from the European Union. What could those things be? I've asked the question in Parliament before of ministers who never got an answer. What will Cameron do if he doesn't get anything? Will he then not campaign for the UK to stay in the EU? So it seems to me he's worked himself into a very difficult situation, assuming he is back in power. And it'd be good to hear your opinion of where the foothold might be um, that would allow him to follow the strategy that he outlined in his Bloomberg speech. Thanks very much. And uh, Robert Cooper. Um, well, I, I, Alex enjoyed very much also what you, what you had to say. Thank you. Um, uh, I've seen your name mentioned as a possible successor to Cathy Ashton. I'm out of here. Asi- leaving, aside, <laughs> leaving aside the question of whether you want the job, which is a question about sanity, um, uh, supposing, supposing by accident you won the lottery, um, uh, what would you try to do? Okay, thanks, Robert. Really appreciate that one. <laughs> Is there any Finnish media around? No. Um, yeah, great. Thanks. I, I think three excellent questions. The first one on Ukraine. I think it's probably too early, obviously, to talk about accession, but the European perspective has been there. I think this has been a battle of souls, uh, a battle of souls between the East and the West, uh, and, of course, uh, in many ways, the uh, area that has suffered the most now from it is is the Crimean Peninsula. I was intimately, unfortunately, I guess, involved in the war in Georgia. I had become foreign minister four months previously, and we were holding the chair of the OSCE. And the OSCE, albeit uh, an old organization stemming from the beginning of the 70s, has a certain role in peace mediation, especially in frozen conflict. So that's why we went in together then with EU presidency, which was Bernard Kushner, not uh, Ashton yet at that time, to try to find a solution. We're able to find a ceasefire within five days, which has helped, but of course the conflicts are still very frozen, but in a different way. Um, I am surprised uh, and happy that, um, apart from, of course, Maidan Square and Kiev, Uh, Nothing serious has happened in terms of violence uh, yet at the Crimean uh, Peninsula. I hope that uh, we can find a diplomatic way out of this. Uh, It's a very difficult situation. Um, uh, We need to find some kind of an exit for Russia, whether that's possible or not. I don't know, but all I'm trying to say is that we need to find a diplomatic solution on it and and try to avoid the violence as best we can. Our heads of state and government will meet tomorrow in Brussels for lunch, uh, and they will probably start discussing if Russia has not withdrawn uh, or sat down at the negotiating table, they they will probably start discussing such things as uh, defined or targeted sanctions or uh, uh, freezing the discussions on, on visa negotiations. I'm still carefully hopeful because for me, actually, the best peace mediator in the world uh, are the markets and money. This is awful to say, but uh, 
the ruble plummeted, the Moscow market went down by 10%, and the energy markets got shaky. And I, I think that's when all of us realized that uh, there is more to this than political and diplomatic solutions. We have to look at the whole, whole picture. Um, then the second question came from Anthony Giddens. I'm a great admirer, and I told Anthony here before that I read The Third Way and, and studied it very carefully as a civil servant and then also here uh, as an academic. So I'm very honored to have you uh, here as well. What kind of a deal can Cameron get? Uh, what can he get back? I have posed that question many times myself, and I think with this reporting on the competence uh, balance, we have found that there is very little that can be retracted. Uh, there might be you know, some concessions that have to do with working time directives or some kind of opt-outs from social policy and so on and so forth, but very little that has to do directly with the competence uh, issue. Then we are into the sort of a la carte or opt-out uh, mode. But I come back to what I said. If these reports say that, as a matter of fact, the balance of competence is quite okay, and if British business, no matter who you ask, says that we have a great competitive advantage for being members in the European Union, then say it. Don't go on a defensive, on the defensive on European affairs. Say what the European Union is about. Bring out the good sides of it uh, as well, and bring out your influence. Um, it's going to be a really tough one to crack. It's going to be a really tough one to crack, uh, and we'll see how it all pans out at the end of the day. Now, Robert Cooper asked the hypothetical question uh, of um, a Finn being a high representative. To be quite honest, I think that the high rep will always come from a non-Euro country because the uh, Euro countries take the other positions. President of the Commission, President of the European Council, Permanent President of the Eurogroup. Uh, so in that sense, I think it's sort of served on a silver, on a silver plate. Um, I actually belong to the category, funnily enough, who think that Cathy Ashton has done a good job. Uh, her job is almost as difficult as that of the UN uh, Secretary General. Uh, she tries to coordinate the foreign policies of 28 countries who come from with a different historical background and with different interests. On top of that, she has the big ones to deal with, including the country that she knows best, in other words, the UK, including France, and including Germany. And of course, also including, uh, say, Poland, Spain, uh, and Italy. So it's almost a mission impossible. But she has done very well on a few targeted, targeted difficult negotiations, be that on Iran, uh, be that, for instance, uh, on Serbia. And to a certain extent, I would argue that the first steps that we have seen in the Ukrainian crisis have not been bad. Uh, what would I do? Uh, the funny thing, and I said this as a foreign minister over a dinner, and I shocked my colleagues, just when Kathy Ashton had started, I think you might have been there as well, I said, well, Kathy Ashton's job is actually to make other foreign ministers in the European Union redundant. 
and foreign ministers don't usually like to be uh, redundant. Uh, but I think the expectations of the high representative have to be probably brought down a little bit. And then there need to be targeted issues uh, where the next high representative uh, takes uh, uh, a strong role. We should not expect her or him in the future to solve the Middle East crisis. It's not going to work that way. But there are going to be a few crises which I think he or she uh, can solve. But it is one of these jobs, as you well know. It, it's, it's almost impossible to fully succeed in that. You're always going to have an institution complaining, a member state complaining, a minister complaining, uh, you know, someone from a different party complaining. So, But my take is that um, as a first go, uh, she's been extremely good. And I certainly enjoyed um, Foreign Affairs Council much more under her leadership than under the rotating presidency, which for me was messy. Um, just before we come to the next round of questions, if I may, um, let's put a question to you. Uh, we've become familiar in the British press with this idea of a sort of northern coalition pressing a, a, a broadly liberal economic reform agenda in Europe. And um, I wonder whether you think that uh, – is there scope uh, for any sort of intensification of that, mm-hmm. that, that effort with Nordics, Germany, uh-huh. the Netherlands, and Britain? Um, of course, David Cameron would love to be able to show that he's, yeah. he's actually the sort of vanguard of a group with critical mass in the EU, with, with a wind in its sails. Um, do, you, do you think that those countries could be work, could find a way, not exactly of caucusing, but actually of working actually more effectively together to, to press a reform and liberalizing, a liberalizing agenda? Yeah. So um, other questions? Who else would like to? Uh, yes. Right, right at the back, lady at the back. Um, yeah. Hi, my name is Marsha Rankin. I'm a student, and I wanted to ask a slightly more legal um, perspective on your idea of sovereign illusions, and in the extreme example of um, express legislation against EU laws, for Sorry, example... Sorry, uh, what was the last point you said? Um, in terms of express legislation against EU laws, um, so for instance... Ex- what legislation? Express legislation. So is it expressly against EU laws... Um, in terms of, say, um, an austerity act um, on discri- grounds of discrimination on sex, say, paying women less, would you say that the EU could um, counter that, or would there be a reaction from the EU to that? Is that possible? Or? Do you, sorry, I don't, I don't understand your question fully. Um, <laughs> sorry um, about that. Try, try um, once, please give it to once more as quickly as possible. I mean, if, if, if EU legislation uh, is uh, in... No, no, no. If, UK, if the UK legislated expressly in defiance of EU laws on, say, discrimination, would it be possible for, hypothetically, the EU to respond to that? And is there any chance of countering that? Okay, and one more uh, question in this round. Um, yes, gentleman at, at the back on the edge. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Robert Mertfeld. Um, I'm asking this question as a, as a German national. Uh, I quickly want to just ask, this entire debate in the United Kingdom about the Brexit, the leaving the European Union... Uh, would you say this is really due to a couple of individuals, such as David Cameron and Nigel Farage, 
Or would you say there's actually like a larger structure at work that you could identify the roots of this debate? Okay, great, thanks. Uh, first question, Morris, uh, about the Northern Lights together. It's actually we're called the Northern Lights, and, and, and we do uh, have informal cooperation uh, going on. It obviously hasn't been formalized, but obviously when you have 28 member states inside the European Union, and say you have you know, 35 different types of policy domains, you're going to try to find coalitions in, in different areas. Also, before different council meetings, uh, you know, ministers uh, meet up. Now, on trade and the single market, there's clearly a group that pushes a similar agenda. Uh, and that group has in it uh, Finland, uh, Sweden, uh, Denmark, uh, the Netherlands, Ireland, the UK, um, uh, and Estonia. There are a few others that sort of tag along at different types of Germany, uh, no. events. Germany, Germany is there, but not always when it comes to trade, for instance. Mm. You know, German industrial interests are sometimes a little bit in conflict with, with, with perhaps the more traditional internal market uh, agenda. We saw that on the services directive, uh, for instance. But these coalitions are quite loose. Uh, and I, I don't see them sort of uh, staying solid and, 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 and permanent, like the Euro group, for instance. Uh, it's a very different way of, of, of dealing. But we do do a lot of cooperation uh, with, with the UK uh, on the so-called liberal economic uh, agenda. Of course, it would be a little bit easier if the UK was in the Euro. <laughs> You know, because a lot of the decisions are, of course, taken inside the Eurogroup, and because Sweden, Denmark, and um, the UK are outside the Euro, they don't have an influence there. So that's why I would argue that our allies inside the European Union in the Eurogroup uh, throughout the crisis have been Germany uh, and the Netherlands. Uh, and then outside the Euro group, when it's come to the internal market or, or free trade, it's been the, the northern uh, lights. Now, the second question, Marsha, I don't know if I really still understand, but if you were trying to say that if UK legislation is against EU legislation or discriminatory, can the European Union act? Is that sort of? Okay. If, if it's expressly stated that that's the fact. So as opposed to a... Do you have an example? Um, for instance, giving an example of an austerity act which um, allows women to be given a lower rate of pay than men, mm. which is... Well, then it... Yeah. Well, put it, put it this way. I'm, 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 I'm married to a Brit and I'm married to a lawyer, and I wish she was here now <laughs> to give me the answer, because she makes more than I do anyway. <laughs> but but, 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 uh, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't have legal expertise enough to say so, but it is quite clear, uh, especially in areas where the European Union has exclusive competence, but also where it has shared competence, where national legislation to be bluntly in conflict with European legislation, something would have to be done for it. Now, then, of course, you have different cases that can be raised at the European Court of Justice, for instance. In the UK, there seems to be a bit of a mix also with the court in, in Strasbourg. And I you know, think that that is somehow linked to the European Union when, for instance, it comes to discriminatory areas, but, but it's not. But I'm quite confident with the way in which the European 
justice system works. But if I can jump to one more sort of perhaps side pathway answer to this is I am at the same time worried a little bit about the way in which rule of law is interpreted in, in, in many member states today. You know, we've had some very serious cases in Romania. We've had serious cases uh, in Hungary. Um, and if we sort of try to stay true to our values and what the European Union should stand for, I think it, there should also be ways and mechanisms which are faster and not as heavy uh, to suss out issues, for instance, which have with discriminatory procedures to do. Then there was uh, the final question by Robert from from. From, from Germany uh, and, and the debate is it driven by individuals or is it driven by sort of a collectivity probably individuals take the lead uh, but the collectivity is at the end of the day which drives it and I have found that people who are anti something it doesn't matter what it is you know it can be anti-gay it can be anti-EU, it can be anti-globalization, it can be anti-free market, it can be anti-social security. No matter what it is, the anti-side is always the louder side. Uh, and, and it gets its voice heard much better. Now, right now, in terms of individuals, the way in which I see it is that Nigel Farage, who I find to be uh, a very talented man, one of uh, probably the most talented politicians that we've seen uh, in modern Europe in terms of communication. He has dominated the agenda. And don't blame the media for him dominating the agenda. Look at yourself in the mirror. How can I counter Nigel Farage's attack? Then you have a few who have the guts to come out and say, listen, I think this guy is wrong and these are the reasons. I think uh, Nick Clegg has given a speech today, for instance, at the Centre for European Reform. And as far as I understand, he's going to have a televised debate uh, with Nigel Farage in the beginning of April. This is a type of a debate that we need. And believe me, I, we talk European stuff at home as well. It's, it's quite okay, you know. My wife and I, we met at Bruges at the College of Europe. It's College of Love, as we call it. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, it's not exactly like you're going to get two anti-Europeans getting married at the College of Europe. So you know on which side of the debate she stands, including, of course, her, her, her family and the rest of it. But you know, when we travel around in the UK, when we follow the British debate, it's, it's very difficult sometimes to understand it. where the hell is this stuff coming from? You know, all the different crazy examples of, of, of crazy legislation from the UK. And it's always this sort of feeling that Brussels decides. And I would always argue, it is so easy to blame everything on Brussels. You know, it's, it's become the spitting cup. It's sort of the mentality is everything that is bad comes from Brussels. Everything that is good is thanks to me. You know, this is the mentality that we see very often. And I think individuals have responsibility for this. Uh, but at the same time, individuals have the responsibility to give the counter-argument as well. And that's the one I want to see in the UK. And I just don't, I don't see the courage. I mean, I, I want to get involved in one way or another. But I've also seen when I get involved, I get slammed by some people uh, you know, coming from the UK. Slammed in a way in which you know, I just don't experience anywhere else. Right. 
Well, Alex, um, I, uh, I, I think that today, uh, in the last hour or so, you established uh, beyond any reasonable doubt your, your credentials as uh, David Cameron's secret weapon for a yes vote <laughs> in this country um, after the next election, assuming he is, assuming he is, he is re-elected. Uh, whether you'd be prepared if you, were, if you were called to do your duty, I don't know, I don't want to put you, I'll, on, I'll the, put here, you, so. put you on the spot. Um, well, that would, speaking as a pro-European... I have three Brits at home, so... <laughs> I'll be here. <laughs> well, I'm delighted to hear that, speaking as a Brit, pro-European, and a Conservative like you. So, um, okay, anyway, that is some way, that is some way off. In the meantime, uh, we hope that you will come back many times to share uh, thoughts, observations of the, of the quality which you have shared with us today. We've, you've given us a great hour. We really are most, most grateful to you. Thank you, Alex, and I'm sure we'll want to show our appreciation in traditional LSE fashion. Thank you.